Welcome, friends. On behalf of the Presbytery of San Fernando, I am delighted to have you as part of our regular conversations. Our Presbytery is a community of churches and ministries that is seeking to be part of Christ's mission with faithfulness, joy, humility, and courage in the northwest part of the Los Angeles area and beyond. I hope that you enjoyed this dialogue. Please feel free to learn more about us by visiting our website at sfpressmeeting.org. Thank you so much for listening. Reverend, you're up. Yes, thank you, Ellen. Um, I am very excited tonight to have my friend Micah with us. Um, Mike and I met in the PhD program at Calvin Seminary uh, a little over 10 years ago now, and, uh, but I haven't had a chance to see him in, in a few years, so I'm, I'm excited about this. Micah and I are peers. He is five days older than I am, um, and he was a year ahead of me in the PhD program, but uh, despite our, our closeness in age, uh, because of his his great wisdom, I've always viewed Micah as much as a mentor, as a peer and friend. Um, Micah is a graduate of uh, Hampton University, studied physics, and uh, so you'll see has very very diverse background. Um, went to Vanderbilt University, a Divinity School for his MDiv. Started uh, I forget if it was before or after that, but started a PhD program in astronomy at uh, uh, University of Rochester, but then ended up eventually at Calvin Seminary uh, with me, did his, his doctoral work there, wrote his dissertation on Martin Luther King and is a uh, recognized King scholar, wrote on uh, King and theodicy, the, the issue of, of suffering in King's thought. And then uh, following his graduation, he uh, worked, he founded or was the, the, the founding pastor of a church plant in Grand Rapids uh, in the PCA church. And I got to see him preach there a few times. And then just recently has moved down uh, to his, his homeland of Nashville and is pastoring a church in Nashville there uh, in Christ Presbyterian Church is where he's at now. He is married to Christina, another very gifted scholar. I, I used one of her lectures in a class that I taught at Fuller a couple quarters ago. I'm not sure if I told her that, um, but she's in uh, the field of, of psychology. She was a dean at uh, Calvin. I'm not sure what she's doing now. Maybe you'll, uh, that'll come up. And then the father of Zoe and Shiloh, who I uh, remember as being toddlers and an infant, toddler and infant. And I remember Micah taking them to the to the public library in Grand Rapids for story time, but they are uh, 14 and 10. Yeah, that's now. right. So, um, yeah, the, it's hard to, hard to fathom. Time, time passes like that. So I will um, have a few questions that I will start with and then have some follow-up with, with uh, where Micah goes with them. Hopefully they'll be a little bit open-ended to, to allow some, you know, the spirit to lead this conversation. And then um, if any of you have questions, you can either put them in the chat box and I have my computer open over here. So if I look to the side, I'm just checking the chat box for questions um, or I'll, we'll try to have some 
some time at the very end for, for some questions also. Um, so, and we can have you ask those live or you can ask them in the chat box, whatever you're more comfortable with. So uh, welcome, Micah. So, so glad to have you with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's a real joy and honor to be here. Uh, well, I'll start uh, my first question. You, um, this is sort of an over, partly a personal Micah question, but we'll uh, expand into some of our topics. You find yourself in a lot of situations where you're not just uh, a minority, but you are sometimes the only representative of, you know, the non-majority uh, culture. You were working in astronomy which is, uh, I guess, Neil deGrasse Tyson is, is in that field, but, but right. it's not, not a lot of African-Americans in that field. Then you go into Reformed theology specifically. You go to Calvin Seminary. You are in the denominations, the PCA, the OPC. Um, is this uh, going into situations where you're uh, offering a different perspective? Is that something that just lines up with your interests, or is that a an context that you feel called to specifically? Thank you for asking, my brother. Well, it, I, it does appear that I'm a glutton for punishment, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> it seems like it. <laughs> you know, I find myself in these situations in which I am uh, oftentimes the, the first. Uh, it's not because I intend to be, you know, uh, but um, it, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, in some ways it's, it's uh, it's exciting to be able to um, go into a new context. It's a little bit sad that it took until, you know, 20, 20 you know, uh, I guess it was what, uh, shoot, uh, 2008 or nine, you know, when I first started going through the doctoral program. And uh, I, I went through that program and I was the first African-American to, to get a PhD from Calvin Seminary. And so it took some time for that to happen. I was actually the first African-American to be ordained in the Nashville Presbytery in the PCA just recently. Okay. And um, the, that, that Presbytery is about 40 years old. Um, and, but Nashville is a city that's 28% Black. So right. it should have taken 40 years uh, uh, to get someone. Um, but uh, it, it, that is something that has presented um, exciting opportunities um, and, and some significant challenges for me, you know, um, but I'm determined to, um, you know, to, to not only to honor the Lord, um, but to honor the Lord in actually um, bringing uh, a perspective to bear, a cultural perspective to bear that perhaps will call the people of God or allow the people of God to see things in scripture uh, and in the Christian life that they otherwise would not see. You know, so that's a, that's been an exciting thing. You know, um, that's certainly a lot for me to learn from these contexts I've, I've, I'm coming into. But um, I think in some ways uh, I've been kind of, um, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries of what is traditionally thought of as as reformed theology, you know. Mm. Um, uh, so and not by virtue of, of, of saying things that aren't in Scripture, but just by virtue of seeing things that are there that, you um, uh, by virtue of my sort of social location and uh, the spirit of God, I'm, I'm able to kind of see, you know, or, or, or embrace, you know, so. Right. And the, I think a lot of us, I know I sometimes will shy away from people who 
have very different beliefs, especially even more than, than um, different cultural settings. I find that more invigorating, but people who believe very differently than I do, I mm-hmm. feel I get more defensive. Right. Um, and I, I think you've always been someone who's very good at crossing bridges and divides that seem unbridgeable. Right. Um, what are some principles or um, methods, uh, mindsets that, that enable you or that could enable someone maybe not as inclined to do that to engage in converse, in fruitful conversation with someone who believes very differently in a way that doesn't devolve into uh, trying to, you know, get your, your winning zinger in. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So a few things. Um, one thing is I have to think about um, sort of my, my sort of cultural background, and then I'll talk about our sort of faith commitments. Um, one thing is that as a minority living in this uh, context, um, I have as a as I have to as by way of survival be able to understand the predominant culture and to be able to um, speak in such a way that I'm able to be understood and heard and to learn uh, you know the kind of um, the values the commitments um, uh, of the of the predominant culture. That's just a that's just um, a survival strategy. You know, every minority in a in a context like that, if 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 the majority context is not your own cultural context, mm-hmm. you have to learn that and you have to be able to adapt culturally. So um, that so that's a skill that has that I've had to develop by way of survival and that I've had to that, that I've had handed down to me, you know, in some sure. way. Um, in terms of by way of faith commitment, I, I do think that um, as uh, as believers, we do have a call uh, to to empathy. Um, and to cultural curiosity, actually, um, in order to be able to love our neighbors well. Uh, so, um, you know, so Romans 12 calls us to weep with those who weep, right? And in order to weep with, the, and that's interesting, um, uh, uh, the call to weep with those who weep. And, and that call in Romans 12 is actually um, a, uh, speaking to, to the church about how it relates to people outside of the context of Christianity, not just folks who share our same faith, but folks who are uh, not Christians, and 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 that the, the scripture is telling us there, the that epistle is telling us that we are to so take the burdens of our neighbors onto ourselves that we actually find our that we can actually cry tears with them, and that 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 really calls us to um, to 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 take someone else's burden on like that really demands or calls us to cu- cultural curiosity to learn what are their joys, what are their sorrows, what are their fears, what, what are their anxieties, what are the real burdens that these folks are bearing. And so, um, so, you know, so I would say if anybody's sort of wondering, okay, what, what should I have in my toolkit at, um, to help me to better engage my neighbors? I would definitely say empathy is one thing and cultural curiosity is another thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, we have a lot of, um, so, um, so our faith, uh, so, so, for, so for those of you who may be uh, familiar with the Apostles' Creed, you know, um, one, of the, one of the aspects of the Apostles' Creed, one of the marks of the church is Catholicity, right? That's one thing that we confess, that, that the church is a Catholic church, which means universality. Uh, it means that uh, our faith is a faith that was always intended to come to people across cultures. And what that means 
is that we have a call as Christians to, to empathize, to love well, and to understand people of different cultures. And so that's just, uh, that's not even, um, that's not sort of like, you know, you know, some people think of that as sort of like, um, you know, sort of AP Christianity, you know, like that's, that's, the, that's the next level. If you right. really want to really advance in your Christianity, you should, you should seek out additional cultural knowledge. Well, I would actually say that that's kind of Christianity 101. Um, that's not the, that's not sort of the next level of Christianity. That's what it means to be a believer is to be one who empathizes um, with, with people across cultures that, that learns um, that, that learns about people, that's, that remains curious about people. I think that's especially important right now because we're in a time of cultural polarization in which um, for various reasons, uh, people um, have been uh, tempted not to empathize with the other, right? But to demonize the other, to dehumanize the other, to cut off communication with the other and not to maintain curiosity to learn from the other. Uh, that's, how, that's how cultural polarization flourishes in environments in which people are in silos and they, they don't actually have that kind of exchange. So we have resources within our faith that actually calls a, call us to cut against the grain, actually continue to be curious about one another and to continue to, uh, to, to dive deep into empathy. Yeah, great. Uh, we have a, a group in our presbytery that is fairly recently uh, working on advancing leaders of color um, because we are lacking in that in, a, in our uh, in our context in our presbytery. Um, one question with that: Why would you say that there are so few leaders of color in Reformed traditions? It's probably even more so in the Presbyterian churches that you've been in than in the PCUSA. So in the OPC and the PCA, you've seen that, but would you say it's historical, theological, structural, cultural combination of those? Why? All the above. All the above. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, it's historical in the sense that, and I'll, I'll speak, uh, I love, I love it that I get to talk to some Presbyterians, praise the Lord. I, yeah. I often don't get to actually talk with, with folks who are Presbyterian. I mean, outside of, my own denominational context. So I love this. Um, uh, so, um, so, you know, there were, so there were many black uh, and reformed Christians uh, very early uh, in the Christianity of enslaved Africans here in the United States. Hmm. Um, many people came to faith under uh, new light preaching um, and, um, and, 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 with the, the kind of its focus on the on the on the Christian affections, uh, there were many African enslaved Africans that came to faith in that context, right? And many of them came to think of themselves as Presbyterian, and 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 so there were many many Black Presbyterians under the conditions of slavery. After emancipation, um, uh, there was um, an attempt by white Presbyterians to resubjugate uh, African-American Presbyterians using the form of government. And so um, they, you know, so African-Americans could not hold office. They could not uh, be, they could not, um, you know, represent a church at a presbytery. They could never be a moderator. They, all these ways in which they would let uh, their black 
brothers and sisters know you are not uh, equal in our eyes and there is, there's not equity here, right? And so um, what African-Americans did was they actually went into an, a more independent form of government and they began to become okay. congregationalists. And that is actually how, that's actually why most black folks are Baptists to this day. Um, it happened right after it happened after emancipation during that time during reconstruction is when when that when that great um, that kind of uh, that kind of movement happened right um, and if, if you want to kind of look, learn more about that history um, there's a book called the history of the Negro Church by Carter G Woodson which actually laid chronicles that um, that kind of dynamic and um, and and I would say that that was a kind of in many ways, sort of one of the cataclysmic um, events that really set the demographic landscape of Presbyterianism to this day, right? And so uh, when, um, when many African-Americans went into that congregationalist form of government, uh, they kind of left reform spaces behind, didn't leave, did, did not leave reform theology behind, but, but left reformed sort of ecclesiology or at least that the um, kind of association with their white brothers and sisters in that way, in that formal way. Um, okay. uh, and, uh, and we're still living with that to this day, actually, you know, yeah. um, they've just, they've never returned to reform spaces. So I think, um, you know, one of the things that's absolutely, so, so you have that. Okay. You also have the uh, kind of common association of reform theology with being a kind of Eurocentric expression of the faith, um, and 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 you have some notable instances of Christian hypocrisy that have yeah. uh, caused African Americans to sort of reject that expression, right? Even if they don't, even if they don't reject the kind of um, doctrinal categories, they will reject the kind of ethical. Um, outworking, you know? So if you think about, um, so for instance, in my research with Dr. King, I, I learned, one of the things I was curious about was, was the reform, was, uh, you know, did Dr. King, how much of, how much of reform theology was he aware of? Um, you know, what was his kind of interaction with reform theology, if he had any at all? And as I read through his seminary papers, I realized that he, um, very much was aware of Luther and Calvin and read them very deeply and closely and, and actually um, had uh, a lot of, you know, affinity toward their theology. Mm. Um, but uh, his major hangup with Reformed theology was he saw apartheid going on in, <laughs> in South Africa. Right. And, uh, he saw what happened with the Dutch Reformed Church. And he uh, said if reform and he actually write, writes it this way he says if this is what reform theology leads to then I want I want nothing of it you know wow. so it was the ethical um, it was the hypocrisy right that actually uh, led him away from you know uh, from reform theology so um, you know and I would say that uh, one of the major hurdles is not necessarily the apartheid but it's, it's it's Christian hypocrisy to this day right um, there are people that that look at um, you know Presbyterian circles, Reform circles, and they're they're wondering, uh, is this a tradition that um, will affirm my full humanity, 
and will um, invite me to the table as a co-heir in Christ, not as a marginalized person, but as a person that is of, of equal dignity, equal worth, that has equal access. And, um, and, and can that be a reality in practice, not just in principle, you know? Uh, will I have to culturally assimilate uh, in order to be seen as a full member? Um, or can I come with my full black self into their midst? And uh, a lot of folks don't necessarily think that they can. Um, and based on various experiences, they will, uh, they will find themselves um, excluded out of these spaces, you know? Um, yeah, which, I mean, you know, we can get into that. We can get into why, why that might be, but yeah. uh, that's kind of, I'll leave it at that. I, I'll leave it up to you as to whether you want to go down that route. So. Sure, sure. Um, I did have a later a possible, uh, the, the, the apartheid, that's an interesting connection for, for Dr. King. And, and I, I wish I could see what his reaction would have been to the Belhar confession. Um, to see, and, and just that whole process that, that led to that with the, the indigenous church using principles of reformed theology to teach the Dutch reformed kind of where they had gone astray. And, um, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, I mean, so, um, and that's, you know, that there's, there's a long history of that, even in this country, actually, mm -hmm. um, with African-Americans, uh, like Henry Highland Garnett and others who essentially used the theological categories of Reformed theology in order to pursue freedom and liberation, right? So there is this minority report, but it isn't very much a minority report. Um, and so that that was not the, um, you know, that was, you know, uh, Dr. King wouldn't have been aware of Henry Highland Garnett, you know, he wouldn't have been aware of the fact that Phyllis Wheatley was reformed and, you know, Ida B. Wells spent some time in a Presbyterian church and even Frederick Douglass had, an, had a, a bit of an encounter with the Presbyterian church himself. So there's a lot of folks who, um, you know, had uh, various connections with reform. Uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, who was an amazing educator and activist, she spent time in a Presbyterian church, you know, called herself a Presbyterian. So, um, you know, a lot of folks don't, they may not necessarily know that there is this um, there is this kind of connection in history. So, right. Huh. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. But um, you do a lot. I mentioned you know, that you do a lot of bridge work and kind of seeking talking about unity um, with people who who disagree on on various things. Um, would you say that there is a point where um, where the pursuit of unity can get to the point of excusing sin. Um, would you say that, that unity is always kind of the highest thing that we should uh, pursue? Or would you say that there is a point where without compromising speaking truth, um, but where we're trying to, to seek unity with a particular group would actually be um, giving some legitimacy to falsehoods that they perpetuate? Great question, brother. I guess it depends on what you mean by unity, right? So- oh, Let's um, keep, keep this within the church. Say that there, that there was, you were invited to speak to a denomination with, with, with deep unrepented roots in white supremacy. Right. Um, would the fact that they confess Christ, would you see them as, um, as brothers and sisters who are 
airing, or mm-hmm. would you say that they're holding on to this white supremacy would mean that they are holding on to a heretic heresy and, and kind of pulling themselves away from the church? I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Think about this. Um, so, uh, so in the first century, you had um, you had a, a man run away from uh, escape the city of Colossae, um, a man named uh, Onesimus. He was an enslaved man um, who had escaped uh, a slaveholder named Philemon and his household, and he makes it uh, as far away as Rome, about thirteen hundred miles away. Uh, and comes into contact with the Apostle Paul. Paul, uh, you know, preaches the gospel. Onesimus comes to faith, spends some time with Paul, his disciple. And, um, and then one day, uh, the Apostle Paul essentially says to Onesimus, uh, I want you to go back to Colossae and to the household that had enslaved you. Now that, I think, is a major... Um, if I were if I were to put myself in the in the shoes of Onesimus, okay, <laughs> um, you know, you say say you're you know you you know Frederick Douglass, you escape you know uh, slavery in Maryland, you make it up to you know New York or something, and someone shares the faith with you, and you come to faith, and then they say, now I want you to go back to that plantation, you know, uh, excuse me, but no, I'm not going to do that, you know, <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, but Paul sends him back. Right. And you think, well, why would Paul do that? Right. Um, he sends him back because he's going to put a he puts a letter in his hand. Um, and in that letter, which is, you know, uh, we, which we know is a letter of Philemon. Right. Um, this letter appeals to this um, this Christian reality known as koinonia, which is a, which is a communion, communion in Christ. And, and it's a it's a communion that actually creates common ground between people that had otherwise been socially stratified. So, and what Paul is going to tell Philemon to do is he's going to say, you know, because this person is now a brother in Christ, you can no longer treat him in this, according to this social relation. You can no longer uh, treat him as a slave, but now in Christ, he's an equal, he's a co-heir and you have to deal with him that way, right? And what, and what Paul is showing is that um, this relationship that we have in Christ actually changes, fundamentally changes our social relation, okay? Um, and it creates equity, right? And it creates true unity, right? That's on, that, that comes on the, on the bounds of equity. And, um, and what I think what we see there is that the highest, our highest calling, so, you know, it, it, I, I would say that, you know, our, our highest calling has to do with flourishing, you know, and so, and, and in unity, we can flourish insofar as that unity is founded on uh, justice, equity, mutuality, right? Um, uh, but oftentimes what people want to do is they want to put people together, right? That don't have equity or justice or mutuality, right? And when they do that, um, that's a recipe for abuse. That's a recipe for re- for trauma. That's a recipe for exploitation, right? Um, and uh, and so, you know, I think that we have to be careful that we help people to know that true unity uh, really calls for us to be unified in our common purpose as well, and in our common commitment to one another's flourishing, right? Um, so any 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 
other kind of unity that doesn't affirm that in some deep ways is not real unity, right? It's just, uh, it is a, it's a, it's, keep this in mind. Um, you know, I've, I've thought about this as a, as a pastor of a multicultural church. You know, it's interesting. Historically speaking, multicultural churches are not new in America. The very first multicultural churches were on plantations, mm. right? <laughs> and, uh, and plantation churches were very diverse, right? They had a lot, there were a lot of black people and white people together, right, in the same space. But there was no, there was no equity, right? And there was not flourishing, right? And so the question is, are these people unified? No, they aren't. They're just in the same space, right? Yeah. And, um, and in fact, them being in the same space under the guise of Christ, under the name of Christ without equity is actually a false witness about what Jesus demands and calls us to, right? This is one of the reasons why the black church was, was created, right? What, 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 what demand, what the, uh, why it was so necessary, right? Because African-Americans uh, needed to have a theological and ecclesial response to the legalism, the cultural legalism of white supremacy, which says that um, African-American, which, which says that um, our currency, our uh, ability, our access to Jesus is not based on our ethnicity, but based on the righteousness of Christ alone. And, um, and so if, if, if our white brothers and sisters over here on the plantation won't affirm that, then we've got to go somewhere uh, where we can hear that, where, where we can recognize that it's, it's Jesus and Jesus alone, not Jesus and my race. You're right. right. Uh, so um, and a lot of people don't understand that about the black church. It actually is a theological ecclesial response to a form of legalism. It's a kind of reformation that happened here in the United States. Um, so um, that, you know, that that's important to recognize. If we don't recognize that, then what we're going to say is, well, let's just let's just all come together in the same space, you know, and. Uh, let's just not talk about the real things that have actually led to our division, right? Um, the injustices. The problem is not just that we're divided, it's also that we're stratified. Right. Right. And so when we come back together, uh, if we don't address the stratification, right, then we're not, we're, we're in the same space, but we're still not unified. You know, <laughs> we're still, right. and, and scripture like, insist on this. It uses language like co-heirs, you know, um, it uses language like brothers and sisters, this family language, this, this, this kingdom language. And, and, and that, that's getting into issues of power. That's getting into issues of how is, you know, how is power shared in this space, you know? Um, uh, and, and scripture won't let us get away with, um, you know, uh, coming together and doing it the way, you know, Jesus talks about, um, you know, that, you know, kind of, you know, his, his, uh, his, his disciples are kind of like into this whole hierarchy and power game and who's going to have the best seats in the kingdom and who's going to have the highest, you know, and, and, and when Jesus sets them down and, um, and he basically says, look, the Gentiles do it this way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the unbelievers they don't know how to use power. They lord it over each other. They, there's a very clear caste system and hierarchy in the way in which the world functions. 
But he tells them this, he says, but it, but it must not be so among you, right? The way they're gonna be different is that they're not gonna deal with power in the church the way folks are dealing with power outside the church, right? And so the difference around the world's unity and the unity of the church is that it's a unity that shares power equitably, right? So, yeah. It forces you to uh, define more precisely what our goal should be, that, that diversity as a goal is, can be good, but diversity can also be rife with injustice. And so it's not an end in itself. And so we need to kind of clarify what it is that we are seeking. And that, that image of uh, you know, the, the stratification and the, the injustice in there, we talk a lot about need, the need to meet in the middle and compromise, which I, in general, I think is a good thing. But if the problem is not just division, but uh, inequality and injustice, then meeting in the middle is, is a modified form of injustice and not really any kind of true unity. Exactly right. That's, that's the definition of tokenism. Of what? Right. Say it again. Of tokenism, right? Oh yes, right. right. Tokenism is, is is essentially when you yes. want someone's. It's when you want someone's face but not their voice. Right. Right. Yeah. When you say, "Look, we we want to have you so that we can look diverse." Yeah. Okay. But right. we don't really want your opinions, and we don't really want your culture in a, yeah. in a real significant way. We just want you to come here so that we can look like we're something that we're not. Yeah, we're um, not racist. Look, Micah spoke on our uh, on our conference. Hey, look, we can yeah. point to five members. Look, that person, that person, that person. And the yeah. thing is like, you see Jesus railing against this kind of thing uh, at the temple, right? I mean, he, he called the temple. It's interesting, his, 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 uh, his language that he uses, he uses from Jeremiah. He calls it, he said that uh, it should be written that my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers, okay? And it's interesting because why the language den of robbers? Well, a den is, is a hideout, right? A den is something that we could use to cover over the injustice that we're really about in here, right? Mm. So what we can do is we can put on a great religious diverse, we can put on a great diverse pretense. We can really make things look very charitable and equitable, right? Without actually changing the way we're doing, we're sharing power, without actually changing who, who makes decisions, you know, uh, without actually changing, um, you know, who's controlling the levers of the, you know, like, um, so, you know, so there's a lot of, this is the, uh, so multicultural churches, I have to, I kind of have to know some of this stuff because I'm pastoring a multicultural church, you know, and there's been a kind of a rise of multicultural churches over the past, you know, say 20 years. Um, and there's been some recent research that have come out that basically says that uh, a lot of these churches um, have, are essentially bad for minorities because, um, <laughs> You know, they come in with all of the sort of promises of equity, justice, having an equal seat at the table. But then when they actually get into these situations, um, the power is really not shared, you know. Mm -hmm. And so these churches, although they might look diverse, it is a kind of 
it's a kind of blackface. It's a kind of uh, sure. veneer of diversity, you know, without actually being it beneath the surface. So, yeah, the, I jotted down the you know the idea of tokenism as a possible follow up, and this kind of ties into my very first question: um, How, when you are frequently the first African American in a different context, how do you um, push back against that tendency to uh, you know, become that token, um, where, you know, you, cause when you were in the OPC, were you the only African-American pastor there? Yeah. So, um, so you are as a pastor, you're in a, a position of leadership, but, but still, um, I could see that being, um, well, you know, a way of saying, well, this denomination's doing okay because we're diverse or we, you know, share power. Um, but in, in any situation, there is a first. So mm -hmm. how do you go from being the first to keep that going rather than having it stop as, as being the, the, the one, you know, my black friend, that kind of idea. Right, 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 right. Well, I think it takes a, I think it takes a real commitment to, um, uh, as I mentioned before, but the Catholicity of the church, right? Uh, it, it really takes for, for a person to decide uh, despite what the social pressures might be and despite the rewards that I might get from assimilating, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. And Jesus has called me into this situation as my whole black self, all right? And, um, you know, it would not, you know, so, um, so, it's important that I, so at the moment that I start to sort of lose my own self in this, then I know that I'm being tokenized, right? Um, mm. uh, and, and, you know, so, and I've got to, and, and here's the thing, man, the pressure is immense on uh, minorities to assimilate, right? Because there are, as I mentioned, there are rewards. If I, if I were the black guy that came into these spaces and I essentially sort of um, parroted the kinds of beliefs, ideologies, politics, mm -hmm. uh, yes, Lord, politics uh, that that sort of have a way of denigrating African-Americans and blaming them for all of their, you know, oppression and this, that, and the other, and pathologizing Black folks at every turn. If I was that person, I would be the most popular person, you know, yeah. <laughs> I would be a hero. I would be valorized, you know, um, rather than villainized, you know. Um, so there's a there's immense pressure to to yeah. assimilate. Um, you know, there's there's uh, there's immense pressure to do that. Um, but I've had to over the, you know, over the time I've been in these spaces, um, just continue to be prayerful and. Um, you know, seek counsel and support from others who are doing this kind of work. And um, my wife has been an amazing resource in terms of mm -hmm. um, really keeping me honest around race, class, and gender, you know, uh, issues and, um, and, and just continuing to be, you know, just, and, and just, as I said, just continue to, to try to try to maintain some humility and try to continue to learn, learning more about my own culture, you know, um, and the mm -hmm. culture that I'm, you know, that I'm, that I'm involved with, you know, it's interesting. You have to, um, so if we think about, uh, and this is a point that I actually got from my wife, she's a amazing Bible teacher in her own right. So um, 
you know, she she talks about in trainings that she does, she she's I've heard her mention the Apostle Paul as one of the, you know, sort of chief uh, cultural adapters, you know, a person who um, was able to go in and out of different cultures, right? But, you know, she will talk about how the Apostle Paul laid out his Jewish cred, like he was deeply aware of his own mm-hmm. Right. He was, deep, I mean, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin circumcised on the eighth day. I mean, he laid it out, you know, <laughs> he knew he did a vow. I mean, he this guy did. He knew he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Right. And so he knew his culture better than most people in that culture. He knew it mm-hmm. very well. And I think that actually, you know, his own personal cultural appreciation, I think, actually gave him the resources to be able to appreciate other people's culture as well. Mm. He was able to distinguish cultural pra- preferences from theological principles, right? You know, that was one of the major issues in, in the early church. There were people that kind of got, you know, cultural preferences and theological principles all mixed up to the point where they thought, well, look, all these Gentiles, they've got to get circumcised. They've got to take the dietary codes. They've got to become Jewish in order to become Christians. Well, Paul, because he knew what was culture and what was theology, because he knew his culture so well, was able to make the distinction and show them, no, 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 that's actually just a cultural preference. Now this over here, this is the theological principle, right? And so he was able to make those distinctions um, because he knew his culture so well. And again, I think that gave him the resources um, to become an appreciator of other people's culture as well. So I would encourage folks, um, and I've had to do this myself, you know, dig into your culture, you know, dig into your culture. I say this to not just ethnic minorities, praise the Lord, my precious white brothers and sisters, you are not just white, right? You are whatever it is you are, whether whatever it is you are, whether it's Dutch or whether it's British or whether it's Irish or whether it's Scottish or whether it's German or whether whatever it is, Find that out and dig into that and know yourself apart from merely the kind of Americanized sort of mm-hmm. racial cast. Know your story, right? Be- embrace your story. Love that story. And that way, and that will set you up to begin to recognize why other people love their story as well. Right, right. I like that for a couple of reasons. One, on, on, the, on the theological level or the, the biblical studies level, it's so easy to, to think that it's a very pious perspective to say, I just care about the Bible. I'm not really into cultural things, but to know that if you're not understanding your, your cultural context and your personal stuff that you bring into it, um, you can't really make that distinction between what is Christian and what is, uh, you know, my own background. And then at the, uh, at the interpersonal level, uh, being secure and appreciating your own identity is actually what can free you up to, uh, to not feel threatened by others. Exactly. Um, exactly. Brother, when I tell you, uh, I'll tell you who sees your culture and who knows it. People who aren't in your culture. Right. right, they, right. Know. <laughs> they know it. They know it from a mile away, right? right, they, can right. See it, they can pick it up. You know, it's, it's amazing. Um, when I, when I uh, went from, I think one of the, so when I went from uh, being involved in predominantly black churches into going into predominantly white churches, there are tons of things that I noticed 
that um, maybe other people just didn't, you know, and they right. just thought this is just the way you do church. Yeah, this yeah. Church. This is just, you know, this is just church. And I'm like, no, that's really cultural. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we just all sit like this and we have this level of volume, you know, or yeah, not yeah, yeah, volume, yeah. and we have this level of activity or non-activity with our bodies in hand. And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, and they're like, every Christian does like that. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's very, very cultural. And yeah. uh, it's, I mean, that's not a bad thing. Praise the Lord for it. But it is a definite cultural thing, right? And you've got to be aware of that. So that, because what we do is we will often moralize differences, right? We will say, well, the way, the reason yeah, we sure. is because we are very pious and reverential. And other people that don't do it like us, they're not as pious or reverential. Okay. <laughs> and so when you, when you realize, well, actually, this is really, um, this is an aspect expression of my cultural makeup rather than my theological makeup. Right. You can say, okay, I feel good about my own, um, you know, posture in worship and I can affirm somebody else's as well. And I can praise the Lord for them too. The one thing I think you, you are, one thing, one of the many things I admire about you, um, you speak truth in a very disarming way. And I think you, you mentioned the, you know, if you just parroted the, the popular line for whatever, whatever group you're speaking to, that's one easy extreme. Um, the other easy extreme or easier extreme is to be very, um, accusing and condemning and to speak truth in that middle place in a very disarming way. Um, I have learned a lot from you over the years. One of the things I'm, I, I'm transitioning to, um, I have had a hard time, and especially until kind of recent last five years or so, um, recognizing my own white privilege. And I think part of the reason for that is trying to go into academia. And I think that academia is a field that is more aware of those issues than a lot of other fields. And so I would say, well, I'm not, I'm not privileged because my whiteness does, is not helping me get a tenure track professor job. It's, it's, you know, it's not helping me to be a white male. Um, one of the things that helped me to see levels of my privilege was a talk that you gave with the, the Gospel Coalition about is Black, rights, Black Lives Matter the new civil rights movement? And there were levels of privilege that um, that I didn't see that you helped me to see in that. Um, so what would you say are for, say, someone here who um, has hard time seeing their privilege uh, and particularly their you know, white privilege? Um, what are some hidden layers of of white privilege that we might not see if if we're seeing just kind of the most obvious my daddy was an investment banker and I got in, you know, to that field that really kind of seeks out people that look like me. What are some of the, the hidden privileges that we might not see? Okay, thank you for asking that, brother. Um, so I, I, I can talk about a couple things here. Um, I, uh, I can talk about my own story, a little bit about my own story. Um, so, um, so none of us come here in a vacuum. Right, we all have. Uh, there's a there's a whole story behind how we got here, right, and the world that we inherited, right, the world we were born into, 
And a lot of times, you know, uh, and, and most of those things that were handed to us, we didn't personally have anything to do with. We just, we came into the world. I mean, I'll give you an example, whether or not, um, whether or not your, uh, when you were born, your mother was uh, addicted to substances, right? What did, what did any of us have to do with that, right? That was something that uh, if, if, if your mother was healthy when you were born um, and you came into the world in that situation, um, that was something that none of us earned. That was something that we just was given to us or not, you know, and there are other people that were born that uh, maybe born, have been born addicted to substances, right? That's a, that's a tremendous, and, and just that, that in and of itself, right, can determine uh, a lot about a person's, you know, outcomes, trajectory in life, prospects in life. It has nothing to do with anything a person chose or didn't choose, you know, uh, it, for themselves, right? So, um, so we, we, we all have a story. We all come into this world inheriting certain things. My family was, um, my, my grandparents are from, uh, or were from Alabama, rural Alabama, my mother's side. They were sharecroppers in, in rural Alabama, which was, for those of you who may not know much about sharecropping, knows that's, that was really a kind of another form of slavery. You know, um, you were in a situation where you could not own the land that you were working and you basically, it was a subsistence type of living uh, in which you would, you know, you go and you work the land all year and you give the crop and then they give you a kind of a, um, you know, some small portion of it to continue to live on. And, uh, and then, you, you know, you do the same thing year after year after year. Well, one, one year, uh, my grandparents uh, went to, um, you know, essentially get what was owed to them for working the land all year. And the person that was supposed to give them that, that owned the land, decided to cheat them out of what they were owed that year. And, and you know, at that time, um, they were, you know, this is rural Alabama. This, this person that owned the land was white. They were black. There was no real recourse for them. Um, if you were to assert your rights um, in rural Alabama as an African-American, you could end up swinging from a tree, essentially. Uh, and so what ended up happening was they decided to move from rural Alabama, Limestone County, Alabama, to, uh, to Nashville, Tennessee. We're going to move to the big city. We're going to try to move and, and try to, uh, you know, determine our prospects or get better prospects from moving to Nashville. And so they moved to Nashville, Tennessee, um, um, my grandfather had, you know, third grade education. Um, my grandmother had more education, um, but um, you know, they 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 did the best that they could, um, and uh, and they, you know, and uh, and and they gave what they could to their children, who gave what they could to me, right? So now now so here's the thing. Um, let's think about if my grandparents had been able to actually have own that land, right? If they had been able to own the land that they were working, right? What would that, you know, so they own the land. Uh, let's say they had access to education. Let's say they could have eventually, you know, uh, you know, brought themselves up and flourished. And then what would that have meant for my parents, right? In terms of their access to education and, and inheritance. And what would that have meant for me, right? So, you know, um, when we come into this situation, um, you know, there's, like I said, there's a whole host of things that determine 
the kind of cards that we're dealt when we come into this situation, mm -hmm. right? So when we think about racism, um, you know, sort of historically, right? You know, the privileges that you had when you just were born, right? Um, into a society that, um, you know, uh, would have given your grandparents, you know, access to, you know, education, access to healthcare, access to, um, to jobs, access to all kinds of things, you know, um, that, that's a privilege, you know, that uh, some people have and some people don't, you know, um, some people have that, some people are just born into that situation, some people don't, you know, some people are born into, you know, an inheritance, some people has had, have had their historical inheritance taken from them, you know, and, um, and, and that's a little bit of that. Now, in terms of our denomination, I had a guy tell me this once. He said um, he was, uh, I won't, you know, he was a, the church I pastored in, uh, in, in Grand Rapids. Um, he, he was feeling a little, he was feeling uneasy because he felt like, uh, you know, I talk too much about race, you know. And um, one day we were having a conversation after service, after church service. And he said, man, he said, I just, you know, I just, I'm just not used to hearing these things from the pulpit. I'm just not used to have us having this conversation in church. You know, I just don't know how to feel about all of this. And, uh, and, and I, and I just said, Hey, you know, you can just be honest. What, what, what's going on? I mean, how are you feeling about it? And eventually he just said, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do as a white guy in this church. Mm. He just said this rare moment of just absolute honesty. Like what I'm really yeah. struggling with is that, I feel nervous about losing. I'm not. I'm not centered culturally in the way that I'm mm. used to being centered culturally, and I'm just. I'm. I don't. I don't. I'm agreed. I'm agreed. I'm a little bit upset about that, and I'm a little bit suspicious about that. And I just want to make. I just want to let you know. You know, and um, you know, it's interesting. I kind of had to in that moment, I, and I thanked him. I said, "Well, hey, thank you, bro. I mean, it's rare that folks are just dead honest. Like, I'm yeah, right. Now, I'm gonna say the thing to you." that I would never have said to you out loud. You know, I would have right. thought it, I would have said it to the folks I feel comfortable saying it to, but I would have never said it to my pastor. This guy says it to me. And then I just had to remind him, I said, well, I said, I said, so you're feeling a little bit decentered in this church, like you're not represented. He said, yeah, I'm just, I don't know if I'm represented, blah, blah, blah. I said, um, I said, now, how many, can you just remind me how many African-American pastors are in this denomination? Mm. Well, there's one. I said, well, okay, okay, okay. Um, how many, how many African-Americans helped to found this denomination? Well, none, you know, so, okay, okay. Um, so we, we got this, we got this Trinity hymnal. How many, how many of these hymns were written, written by black people? None. I, I said, well, we got these confessions. How many, how many black folks were involved in, in crafting these confessions? None, right? So I said, so our, our, so, so our, our confessions, our hymn book, our denomination, our pastors, our founders, all of it is reflective of your culture. <laughs> and you still feel marginalized, right? He was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, there you go. You know, um, so, so, you know, when we're talking about sort of layers of privilege, right? If you can say, my confessions reflect my cultural mm. background. If you can say, my hymn book reflects my cultural background. If you can say the majority of pastors 
the majority of, of elders, the majority of folks on the denominational le level reflect my cultural background. If you can say, when, when I walk into the room, people assume the best of me. They, they assume I belong, right? All of that, those are examples of privileges that you have that other people coming from a different cultural context, coming from a different, different ethnic group into Presbyterianism, they don't have that. They don't have that. And so what we've got to do is we've got to go above and beyond to help them know that they do have a place at the table, right? Mm. I appreciate that. Yeah. I know we're at an hour. Um, what is your time like for a few more minutes for like one or two more questions? I want to, uh, you can, you don't have. Hey, you know what? I'll tell you what, um, I, I don't know. I want to respect y'all's time as well. Um, I'm good for about, I'm good for about 15 more minutes. Okay. So, is that uh, okay, Ellen? Okay. Because I, I have a couple more I want to get to, and I'm, I'm enjoying yeah. this, and I'm, I'm sad it's going to end soon. Um, this kind of builds on on another element of what you were saying about the, the guy, <laughs> I love that story, going to you and, and kind of acknowledging it's hard for me not to be in the center, as, as in the center as I'm used to being. Um, another uh, kind of white church question, but from a, a little different angle, we have a lot of predominantly white churches in our presbytery. And we have a number of people in those churches that uh, recognize the injustice and recognize the imbalance. Um, but even there, don't quite know what to do with that. So, so how can a predominantly white church um, be engaged um, in these kinds of issues in a way where we don't jump into kind of a white savior mode. Um, and I think that part of your answer will probably involve, you know, listening to other voices because a lot of times we talk about speaking for those who don't have a voice, but right. that in and of itself is very paternalistic. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what would you say about, um, just a very recent example, um, this, this doesn't involve African-American, but minorities with the shooting in Atlanta. I was right. trying to write a prayer for that and, and bringing in the racial elements of that. And, and I was struggling and I, I ended up offering some sort of a prayer, but, but part of me wanted to say, I'm just not going to address this because mm -hmm. I feel like however I try to address this, I'm going to seem like the, the, you know, the white guy who's trying to fix things. Right. Um, and I think there are a lot of, of white Christians who are uh, socially sensitive to mm -hmm. injustice and balance but don't know what our place is in addressing that in a way that doesn't seem like I'm coming in to fix it because that's what I do. So what would you say would be responsible, helpful ways that we could step into those spaces? Okay, yeah, that's a great question, brother. I would say first, first um, I'm, I'm gonna be speaking from a Christian perspective, expand your, your theological and faith um, influence uh, sort of corpus. Right. So you need to not just. A, so, yes, certainly we need to be listening and connecting with with friends that um, can that we can learn from their experiences. Absolutely. You also need to get some folks that you're listening to and reading that are from a different ethnic background. Right. If you're only reading 
if your whole bookshelf is just white Christians, um, you know, dead white guys, you know, that's not a good thing, right? Like you've got, because Jesus has spoken to a lot of other people, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they have biblical wisdom, right? Um, and so find, find them, okay? Listen to them, right? Center their voices, right? In, in speaking to their pain. One of the things, so I, so I, I, I wrote a, we did, we did a lot, a number of things at our church around uh, the Atlanta shooting as well. And I wrote a letter to the congregation, basically giving some, um, really some counsel, some wisdom around how do we, how do we as Christians respond? And one of the things I, I really wanted to do uh, was I actually, you know, I went online and I found the prayers of Asian, Asian American mm. brothers and sisters. And I said, and here's a prayer from a brother or sister. Okay. And this is what this sister posted on Twitter about their pain and how she's feeling right now. And this is, and I basically, I made sure that I really centered and highlighted um, the voices of those who were especially victimized in this situation, mm. right? And and not just, and, and so that was, I was trying to model something. I was trying to, to help the congregation not only say, okay, now here's a couple of prayers I was trying to say, hey, you go out there and you, you know, you, you know, there, there are brothers and sisters out there that, that are saying things about this and you can learn from them and you can, you can, and, and you can, as uh, you can begin to enrich yourself based on what they're saying. Right. So, uh, so I would definitely do that. I would find, um, you know, I would find folks that have been doing this well. Right. And I would try to find ways to partner with them. And I would ask how how you could support them, you know. Um, and I would and I would and I would do it in a way that is is a partnership and not a um, you know it's, you know and not um, you know sort of condescending or it has to sort of control the levers of power around this. Right. The, you know, oftentimes the problem is not so so partnership is important. But we're like, we, sometimes we find ourselves shying away from partnership because we know that the history of our partnership is mm. oftentimes filled with paternalism and condescension and, and, and one group sort of trying to control the lever yeah. of power. And so what you've got to do is you've got to be aware that that is a tendency and you've got to go into it naming that. You've got to go into it saying to, to trying to find partnerships and saying, we don't want to control the levers of power, but we want to support you. And we want to support the precious people of God and the precious image bearers in our community. Help us to do that. Whatever we've got to do, we're willing to do it, you know? And, um, and, and, and you know, people of goodwill will invite you along and say, hey, come on. You know, every, you know it's amazing. Um, you know, you look at one of the, this is another thing I learned about, uh, you know, my civil rights studies, right? You look at the, you look at the marches, right? The marches are not just all black people, right? Like yeah, there's right. a lot of folks marching that, that, uh, you know, I mean, you'd be surprised at some of those folks that were, that were marching, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the fifties and sixties. And, and, uh, and so, um, you know, those stories are really important, you know, for people to know. Um, so, um, yeah. So, um, I, I I mentioned um, at the outset that that there'd be time for questions. If there's anyone that has a, a burning question, um, 
you can either put that in the, in the chat. I do have a, a closing question that I'll, I'll wrap up with if there aren't any burning questions, but if there's anything, you know, raising your hand that, that Ellen or Wendy could identify, otherwise I will give you, uh, I see one question there. How might we, we contact you, Micah? Is that okay for me to relay your, what, what, what's the best contact your email or. Yeah. Yeah. But the best contact is my email. Uh, through the church. Okay. Yeah. 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 You can, uh, right. You can, uh, so, um, you can, so my first initial M and my last name Edmondson, uh, and Edmondson with two D's, right. Two D's and two O's. Okay. Uh, M Edmondson at Christprez.org. M Edmondson at Christprez.org. Yeah, that's my that's my email. I I I cannot I cannot uh, guarantee that I will be able to get to it. if you have a question. I can't guarantee I'll be able to get to it right away, especially because it is the Easter season, <laughs> and uh, you know we we've got uh, just praise and praise the Lord for that. I I love it, but it is it is definitely busy, busy, busy. Uh, we've got Palm Sunday coming up. We've got. Uh, you know, we've got some noonday services the following week, and then we got Good Friday and, and, and of course, Easter. So, uh, so I appreciate so, you fitting this in here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, man, we. Yeah. yeah. I, I have I one, one last question. Sure. Um, you mentioned the civil rights era, and, and you've studied that quite a bit. When I look back at stuff from like the 1950s, um, it sort of blows me away that um, that stuff was happening and mm -hmm. that people were okay with it. And I don't think that there is a, uh, you know, I'm not post-millennial in the sense that we can, you know, be marching on towards mm -hmm. establishing God's kingdom on earth. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but there are, there's always something where you look back 40, 50 years and you say, what were we thinking? Um, right. Are there any things going on now that you think will be our, looking back 40 years from now and hitting ourselves in the head and saying, how did we let that happen? Hmm. Wow. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of things, man. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it might be too big of a question. For, uh, <laughs> so. I think a lot of things, you know, uh, I mean, you know, um, I think that, you know, here's one example of uh, the Flint water crisis, mm. right? I think people are going to look back on that and I think they're going to say uh, that was just, I mean, that was just so inhumane, you know, why, right. I mean, that's just that you, you talk about, you know, an atrocity, you know, to have an entire, an entire city um, poisoned, you know, and, right. and this is a kind of atrocity that is going to be a generational one, generational, you know, right. Uh, right. so you know, that, that's, that's just one example. I mean, we could talk about mass incarceration. We could talk about, you know, disparities in, in housing and in healthcare. And, and uh, there's lots of different things. I mean, you know, you know, police brutality and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of things we could talk about in terms of what I feel like people will perhaps look back on and say, you know, how could a moral, how could a society that claims to have some kind of moral sense allow that to happen to its... Right people um right you know i mean we got a lot of things you know and I, it going a lot of things going on at our border right now you know i think are just yeah i think we'll look back on and say how in the world did we allow that to happen um 
you know, um, sex trafficking as another, mm. you know, um, and, and just in the general exploitation of women uh, in our society. So, um, yeah, so I just a, a lot of things, man. But, but you know, here's the thing. I, I feel like, um, I think that that's, I think one of the messages of scripture as we look at scripture, you know, you look at people and you say, I can't believe that people would do such a thing, you know? And you know why that, do you know? So we look at, you know, we look at, for instance, you know, Israel, the Lord brings them out of Egypt. This this amazing miracle brings them through the Red Sea, brings them through, you know, you know, he's, he, the Lord is providing for these people. I mean, they've seen mind blowing things unlike anybody in this world has ever seen. And what do they do? Moses is gone for a little while. They get anxious. They don't know what's going on. Hey, let's worship a golden calf. How about that, right? And you're like, these people, I can't believe that these people could be this foolish. And we look at that and we point the finger at those folks, but they're not in there because they're not like us. Mm -hmm. They're in there because they're exactly like us, right? (laughs) God is saying, this is you. This is you. This is the level of, of, this is the level of, inhumanity this is a level of unfaithfulness this is a level we see people doing all kinds of things this is a level of this is what this is this is this is your heart this is you you know right so so be warned right and and apart from god's faithfulness there go i right so we look at these things and i think we have to i think we have to be with, with a certain amount of humility, you know? I mean, we look at our past, we look at our past and we look at, you know, slavery and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna tell you, um, you know, segregation was the majority report for people. They just assumed, they thought it was, you know, the angel, I mean, the devil appears as an angel of light. They thought this, they thought segregation was normal. Look, Christianity, the majority of people's Christianity in America comfortably coexisted with chattel slavery, Jim Crow, the lynching tree, segregation, and you name it, all kinds of systemic things and systemic racism comfortably coexisted, right? Yeah. This idea that we can be a good Christian and we can be a slaveholder. We can be a good Christian and we can promote segregation. We can be a good Christian and we know somebody that kidnapped somebody, you know, tortured them and hung them on a tree. We can be a good Christian and we can do this at the same time, right? And that is the majority report of Christianity in America. Right. It really is. That, that, is, that is our theological heritage in America, a, a kind of Christianity that can comfortably coexist with the worst atrocities. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I think we need to look back on those folks and we need to see how we are likely to, how we could do the same thing. Yeah, like Augustine. <laughs> yeah, they're there, but there for the grace of God go I. Yeah, there go I, right? I mean, absolutely. Now, now here's the thing though, but the Lord has always maintained the witness, right? The Lord has a way of placing somebody, placing a voice, placing a people, placing some Christians that have not bowed the knee to Baal, that yeah. that that still um can see what no one else around them can see, right? And are able to are able to lift up a witness. The black church has been that in America in many ways, right? Um, yeah. And and there's a you know you can look there's that there's been white Christians 
in America that have been able to see the evils of, of racism. You know, Charles Spurgeon was one. Charles Spurgeon, I mean, you know, he was he was he was in England, but but when but Charles Spurgeon uh, decried slavery and racism in America, and his books were burned for it, right? Wow. He was hated for his stand against racism in America because he decided that he wouldn't even eat with a slaveholder. You know, he decided that there's a man named George Bourne who was uh, who was a Presbyterian in America who was disciplined because he wouldn't give communion to slaveholders, right? Um, uh, but, but you know, there, there, so there's hope, right? There's hope. I want, this is what I want you, that's what I want to leave everybody with. Yeah, right. The fact that there is hope, right? Um, so uh, there's a woman named Juliet Hampton Morgan. Have you all heard of Juliet Hampton Morgan? Anybody know that? from you. Juliet Hampton Morgan, you've heard of it from me? <laughs> I think from you, yeah. So Juliet Hampton Morgan, was the librarian, yes, right. the public librarian uh, of the library in Montgomery, Alabama. Okay, uh, she was the public librarian in that library um, in the mid '40s, right uh, up to the late, uh, up to up to the early '50s. Okay, so Juliet Hampton Morgan um, was the descendant of a Confederate general. Okay, and she was kind of she was kind of Southern aristocracy, right? In Alabama, she was a wealthy Southern woman. Okay, that was born to a Southern family, that um, that was very much um, you know expected to just uphold the Southern traditional way of race relations, right? And 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 everything in her background, everything in her society would have said that Juliet Hampton Morgan would have been a staunch racist for her entire life, right? That was, that was the environment that she came up in. But somehow she found her way into an interracial prayer meeting, okay? Um, and it was in the context of that prayer meeting that she began to, re to, to see segregation for what it was, right? Now, Julia Hampton Morgan was a very shy person, very anxious person. In fact, um, she was so anxious that she would not drive her own vehicle. She, she found herself unable to be brave enough to drive her own car because she was so anxious. And so she resorted to public transportation and that's why she ended up getting on the bus line in Montgomery, Alabama. Now, what she ended up doing was having, having experienced this interracial prayer meeting, having begun to question the, the rightness of, self, of segregation, then she gets on the buses and she begins to see how blacks are treated on the buses in Alabama. And, um, and Juliet Hampton Morgan, because of that interaction in this prayer group, um, and when she found herself on the buses, ended up actually, when she saw Blacks being mistreated, staging a one-person protest, right? So now this is, this, is, uh, this is like the mid to late 40s. This is, this is five years before the Montgomery bus boycott, right? This is, this is actually, this is, you know, this is years before King ever got there, you know? <laughs> and here you have this Southern white woman, right? Uh, the, the descendant of a Confederate general, 
actually staging a one woman bus boycott, one woman uh, protest. What she would do was, you know, blacks would get on the, the way this worked was that blacks would get on the bus uh, and they would have to pay their fare at the front and then they would have to get back off the bus and then walk to the back of the bus and then get back in, there was a back entrance and they would get back into the back entrance and then find their seat. Well, what often would happen is they would go into the front, pay their fare, they would get back out and, and oftentimes bus drivers would just drive off, right? Um, yeah, and just, you know, hurl the worst kinds of, you know, um, insults at these folks and, and just drive off. Well, well, what, what Juliet Hampton Morgan would do is if, if, when she saw that about to happen, she would pull the emergency brake. <laughs> and of course, the people around her hated her for this. But she continued to do this throughout the years leading up to the bus boycott, right? Um, anyway, I tell Juliet Hampton Morgan's story because I want people to know that the Lord is able to open our eyes to be able to see things that folks around us wouldn't be able to see. And the Lord is able to use people, a person that was so anxious she couldn't even drive her own car. He makes this person into a witness in the face of her entire community. And the Lord did it for Julia Hampton Morgan. He can do it for you. He can do it for anyone, right? And so I just want, I want people to understand that there is hope. Um, because as long as, you, as long as Jesus is alive, right? Jesus has overcome the worst that evil, sin and death and injustice could throw at a person. He overcame that. He raised for it, was risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the father, Jesus, uh, as long as he is alive, right, we have hope, okay? Mm -hmm. So I want you to know that if you don't hear me say anything else, I want you to know that racism has an expiration date, that injustice has an expiration date, mm -hmm. that even death has an expiration date, but justice will live on forever and flourishing will live on forever and life will live on forever and shalom will live on forever. Amen. All right. Well, I, I saw that we had a question from uh, Phil and Leisha, but I, I went ahead and uh, and asked a, a long question at the end there. So since we're, we're at the end of the, the extra time that, that you allotted us, um, maybe there'd be a way for them to connect with you by email because um, that would that would be a good connection um, uh, for them. I, I know them. So I think you guys would would have a, a fruitful engagement. Um, but thank you so much for being with us, Micah. I really, uh, really appreciate having you with us and, and preaching, teaching, uh, all, all the good, all the good word. Yeah. Thank um, you so much, Darren. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for being so generous and kind with your time tonight. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Ellen, we, would you like to close us in prayer or would you like me to do it? Wendy, yeah. should we, uh, rock, paper, scissors for it? It's up to you, Darren. It's your show. Well, no, it's actually Micah's show. Go ahead. I got it. All right. Um, let me pray, and then I can pray pray for you, my brother. All right, Lord, we thank you for uh, for this time. I thank you personally for the chance to to reconnect with Micah and to learn from him again. Um, I pray that you would bless his ministry in Nashville. I thank you for all that you did uh, through him and his time in Grand Rapids, and I thank you for this this new chapter in his ministry. Um, thank you for his word to us 
tonight. I pray that, that these would be lessons that we can take to heart and put into practice. I pray that you would be making us people who care uh, about all of the dimensions of the gospel, people who take the time to, uh, to exegete what parts of our faith are core to your gospel and what parts are more cultural, uh, more personal preferences for us. I pray that you would help us to explore our, our own lives and our own selves, that we might know those places that need to be healed or reformed or challenged. Uh, and I pray that, that each of us individually and our churches, that you would make us, uh, that you would bend us towards justice, that you would open our ears to voices that maybe we have ignored, that you would uh, be shaping us more in your, your image in, in a deep way, not just in, in people who uh, seek your, your grace and your mercy, uh, certainly to know that, but also people who have your heart for justice and your heart for uh, those who have been marginalized, those who have been oppressed. Lord, uh, shape us in that way as well. Um, make us your, your faithful church. Pray this in as Jesus' name. As we wrap up this time together, I would like to express our gratitude on behalf of the team and the people of the San Fernando Presbytery. My prayer is that it might have been helpful to you. I would like to also invite you to comment, give us some feedback, and perhaps even like this podcast or share it with the people that you know so that we may be able to continue making it available to others. Thank you so much, and God bless you.